This is Cosmic Coffee Time, the place where we take a look at what's happening somewhere in the universe in about the time it takes to have a coffee. It's cosmology in a cup. I'm Andrew Prestige, and join me for a coffee, or two or three today, because we have a special episode talking meteorites with Greg Brenneker. Greg is one of only about 100 full-time meteorists in the world. He's a cosmochemist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, and he's the author of the new book, Impact, How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture and Donkey Kong. And he joined me from New Orleans. Greg Brenneker, thanks for joining us and welcome to Cosmic Coffee Time. Yes, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. This is a really cool, a cool experience to be here. And we'll get to uh, meteorites in your book in just a moment, but can you tell us a little bit about the Greg Brenneker story? Um, you're in New Orleans today. You're normally in Livermore, California, but where did you spend your childhood? Uh, I actually grew up in rural Missouri, uh, so kind of just outside of Kansas City, Missouri, so Midwestern United States, um, and, you know, kind of had a nice nice upbringing in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I had a, you know, brother and, and a lot of land to play around with, with a few dogs, uh, so just got to experience nature uh, kind of you know, with the family, I guess. So you spend a lot of time outdoors getting out amongst the geology. Exactly. Playing with the rocks and the soil and all that stuff. There's not a lot of fancy geology in Missouri. It's it's kind of flat and uh, mostly limestone, but enjoyed my time. And, you know, when I got to university, I uh, I knew that that was something I really liked. So ended up getting into geology as an undergraduate. And you must have studied in some interesting places as well. Yeah, when I got to uh, graduate school, I um, was able to do a lot of cool field trips around the world. Uh, there's, there's great geology everywhere and, you know, got to, got to experience quite a bit of it firsthand. Uh, and it's, it's a lot of fun to be in the field and looking at rocks and, and how they form, you know, and, and emplaced in nature. It's really neat. And do you remember how you first became interested in science or astronomy? And what was it that first sparked your interest in meteorites? And like we said, there aren't many full-time professional meteorite researchers. Yeah, honestly, it's kind of a funny story because, you know, I was I was a traditional geologist by training, I guess, uh, when I started my PhD research. And I was looking at ancient oceans and how they changed over time. And I signed up for a meteorite class um, just because, ah, you got to take some classes. This should be an interesting one. And I, you know, got into it and I really liked the professor. And it was, we did some fun projects. And part of the goal of the kind of final term project was, and create a NASA proposal that that you would want to get funded, uh, you know, just as, as kind of a thought exercise. And uh, I did this. It was kind of fun. And my professor afterwards came up and was like, hey, that's a pretty cool idea. Would you like to do it as part of your PhD research? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Why not? So, I mean, up until that point, I'd never had any exposure to meteorites. I knew what they were, you know, kind of what general people know about meteorites. They probably killed the dinosaurs and they come from space. And that was kind of the, that was it. That's basically all I really knew about them going into graduate school. Uh, and then I took this meteorite class and, you know, ended up studying them for the last over a decade, I guess now. Um, so it, it, you know, really kind of hooked me and, and they're such a cool, cool thing to study. Astronomy is a pursuit that doesn't offer up many souvenirs. Most of what we look at and think about is way out in space and it might as well be hypothetical and I know that meteorites are really important research subjects in your in your field, but they are terrific souvenirs, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely, they are. I have a pretty decent collection myself. Uh, you know, I like to study them, but also you know look at them 
on the shelf. They're, they're really interesting objects. And it's nice that you don't really need that much of it to study it. So you can actually, uh, you know, get a, get a hunk of a meteorite and study part of it and keep the rest for a souvenir sometimes. So they're, they're great for that. I don't know if you if you can recognize this. I'm holding. That up, looks like Murchison to me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm nice. holding up a, a sample of the Murchison meteorite to my webcam. Um, <laughs> Greg identified it straight off. Oh, this, nice. Yeah, because I'm in I'm in Melbourne, Australia, and we're, we're about 170 kilometers due south of Murchison, where that meteorite landed in in 1969, and that used to belong to my dad. Um, oh, wow. He he wasn't massively into um, astronomy. Well, he was kind of. He was he had a bit of a, a bit of an interest in science and astronomy, but before I was born, he used to live in Shepparton, which is not far from Murchison. So he was he was very aware of the Murchison meteorite. And but that profile looks just like the picture of the Murchison meteorite on the on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. But the sa- the sample on Wikipedia is in Washington DC. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a pretty famous meteorite, and uh, consider yourself lucky to have have a chunk of it. That uh, that's great. Um, it's a it's a really influential meteorite, as I'm sure you know. Uh, you know, a lot of really cool things have been found in it, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a really fortunate thing to fall uh, when it did as well. Paleontologists have got fossils to help them look back in time and figure out what happened long ago. And a meteorite's sort of the fossils of the solar system. You know, yes. Uh, so they kind of record basically what happened mostly at the early solar system, but depending on where you get your sample from, you know, a lot of a lot of our meteorites sample the first, you know, 10 to 20 million years of the solar system. So the first, you know, epic of geologic history. Um, but there are certainly meteorites that come from the moon and they come from Mars. Uh, so that allows us to look at kind of the history of the inner solar system with with those meteorites as well. Um, and also some other larger uh, asteroids um, that we have chunks of that allow us to kind of look at what was going on on those large bodies too. So, you know, not only do things like Murchison, for example, contain some of the earliest uh, solids that formed in our solar system. So that allows us to kind of understand what happened at the very, very beginning where the sun was forming. But they also contain pre-solar grains, which uh, are actually fossils before our solar system started to form you know, fossils of dead stars from different generations. And uh, I think that's really interesting. And one of the things that Murchison is certainly famous for is having a lot of these pre-solar grains. Um, so not only are there fossils of our solar system, they all contain a lot of fossils of other solar systems too. Uh, and one of the most significant impacts in the history of the Earth must be the one that caused the mass extinction and, uh, and the end of the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. When I learned about that impact, nobody knew where it was. But we think we know now, don't we? Yeah, there was there was a lot of research that went into that, you know, because it was certainly a very sexy scientific topic to talk about. I mean, you look at dinosaurs and everybody loves that and everybody loves space and you combine that with a giant impact and then that becomes a pretty hot topic. And, uh, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s, that was a, a very important thing that people were looking for. And uh, it, I think everyone pretty much agrees now that it's in the Yucatan Peninsula of, of Mexico where that impact actually happened. Uh, and if not for that impact, do you think the dinosaurs would still be around today? I mean, they were around for a lot longer than they've been extinct. They were around for hundreds of millions of years, and they've only well only been extinct for sixty six million years. Do you think they'd still be around today? Well, that's a good question. I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests the dinosaurs were kind of starting to die out uh, before the meteorite impact. So 
you know, there are people that believe, you know, the climate change was happening and there was a lot of outgassing um, that was going on in Siberia. There's a large volcanic complex uh, in Siberia that was kind of erupting at the time. So, you know, it's one of those things that people argue about still to this day about which was kind of the, the primary cause. And I like to think of it as that, well, okay, I don't really care which one the primary cause was. It probably wasn't good for the dinosaurs to have a giant meteorite impact, uh, you know, block out the sun for for months and, and you know, throw up a bunch of hydrogen sulfide and all these things. So it, it definitely was it was kind of the, you know, the last straw, I guess, for, for the dinosaurs, uh, whether they were already dying out or not. It certainly didn't help things. And metal or the scarcity of metal or iron is, is something I hadn't really thought much about before reading your book. We take iron completely for granted, but it's something that doesn't occur very much in nature or not least on the on the surface of the earth. There's a lot of rock and wood in nature, but not very much metal. We mostly need to make it. And it's a difficult process with uh, smelting it at really high temperatures. But meteorites provided a source of iron long before we learned how to make it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just quickly kind of tweak that just a little bit. We have a lot of iron, but it's but it's iron oxide that we have on the surface. So it's oxidized iron. And what life generally needs, and certainly for, for weapons and metals and things like that, we need uh, reduced iron. So metal, iron metal. And that's what doesn't occur on the surface of the earth, just because we have so much oxygen on the planet. Um, so meteorites do contain a lot of reduced iron and reduced other metals. Um, and, and so that's uh, just a a, a small correction to what you're talking about. Uh, and, and yes, it's been a huge, um, I guess, boon to uh, to life to be able to have these ingredients delivered by meteorites. And, and that has existed from the beginning of Earth and, and still exists today, where meteorites are providing these raw materials that life needs. And seeing iron for the first time would have been mind-blowing, I think. If you'd only ever seen stone and and wood and bone tools before, it, it would have been otherworldly. Yeah, I got to think, you know, 4,000 years ago or something, you know, we weren't able to really smelt iron until about 1200 BCE. Um, so, you know, you look before that time and, you know, nothing is shiny, uh, nothing is hard like like that until you find that iron meteorite. And then that looks totally different from anything else on, on the planet. And uh, that does have to be an extremely exciting thing. And, you know, I, I talk a little bit on the, in the book about how, you know, those kind of discoveries and, and revelations led to a lot of religious, uh, you know, kind of fine or religious changes, uh, you know, a lot of inflection points in various religions have been caused by by meteorites. And I got to think that's kind of a religious experience to see something fall from the sky, make a huge boom, uh, you know, maybe make a giant crater and then find some metal that you've never seen before. Uh, that's that's got to have a pretty big impact, quote unquote, uh, you know, I guess pun sort of intended. <laughs> and I, I've seen probably five or six good meteor falls in my life, but I've never seen anything land. And the rocks and iron on the ground might be found, you know, hundreds or even thousands of years after they fall. How common was it for ancient people to really make that connection between the light show they see in the sky and the rocks and iron they find on the ground? Yeah, it's really funny because it looks like if we look through ancient texts, uh, you know, there's there's quite a few examples of ancient cultures seeing large fireballs and then, you know, sometimes recovering or, or you know, realizing that these stones that they're finding are coming from the sky. Uh, it's, it's not until we got to kind of learned academia uh, in, you know, kind of Aristotle's age that we somehow lost that. Um, you know, there was kind of an argument about where 
these stones that are falling from the sky were coming from. And uh, I, I found that to be fascinating when I started, you know, researching this a little bit more is that, you know, we were kind of arguing in academics uh, about if these things were caused by volcanics, uh, you know, maybe volcanoes on the moon, but most, most, you know, professors and, and things like that. And, you know, kind of basically before 1800 didn't really believe these things were coming from the sky or, or at least from outer space. And that was something that really struck me in your book, that it wasn't until the 19th century. I mean, that was hundreds of years after we saw the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter. And you mentioned Aristotle, and he probably uh, kept us on the wrong road for 2,000 years, perhaps. And he wrote that book, Meteorologica, which is about everything in the atmosphere, weather, meteorites, the lot which I, I think that gave us the word meteorology. I can't believe you guys didn't get the word <laughs> meteorology for studying meteors. Yeah, we had to have a more awkward uh, awkward version of meteoriticist, which is really hard to say and nobody knows what it is. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, Aristotle really kind of set us back. He was pretty important mind, obviously, in a lot of things, but he was not a very good meteoriticist. <laughs> and I guess back back in the old days, you know, people got it wrong for for a long time, as we said, but I guess they were just making the best of the information they had available at the time. And you use that example of the in the 15th century, there was a meteorite that was chained to a church so that it didn't wander away at night or go blazing back into space. I mean, that seems crazy to us. But, I mean, for the people at the time, that would have been only slightly less plausible than the way it arrived. I mean, blazing from the sky. And do you think that maybe in like 500 years from now, that astronomers or scientists might look back at our theories of, say, black holes or dark matter and wonder how we got it so wrong. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. We're going to, as a culture, look back in, you know, a couple centuries and, man, what were those people doing? Why, how did they not get this? So, yeah, I, you know, I hate to be too critical of, of anyone who was doing that at the time. Uh, you know, they, they had the information they had and uh, they worked with what they had. And, you know, that's, I think, what we have to realize and be a little bit more humble maybe than we are as scientists that we don't always have the right answers. We are making interpretations from the data that we have. And when you don't have, you know, fancy telescopes and, you know, really cool mass spectrometers to study these types of things, maybe it's a little bit harder. Uh, so, you know, try to put yourself in those shoes <laughs> 2000 years ago. And I guess a, a turning point would have been maybe the meteor shower in Normandy in 1803, and in the book you mentioned there was a, a chemical analysis done that determined that the rocks from the sky were very different from the rocks not from the sky. Is that when people started to listen? Is that when we started to come round to the idea that meteorites really did come from space? Yeah, I think there was a lot of different research in different fields that were going on right around the turn of the century, around, right around you know the turn into the 1800s. And certainly the chemical analysis was one of the most important. Uh, and basically this, this gentleman, Howard, uh, was able to take meteorites that had fallen around the planet and show that all of these fireballs that they had samples of had very different chemical contents compared to every other rock on the planet. And, and nickel was the, was the one he was working with. So all of the rocks that came from space had a lot more nickel than the rocks that don't come from space. And just that simple observation is, is a really powerful one that says, okay, these rocks are different. And, you know, if you know what all the rocks on earth look like, these aren't from earth. And, uh, you know, that was a, a very powerful recognition. And, and certainly one of those things that you, you know, use the scientific instruments of the time and, you know, 
it, you can just tell that as those things develop and, and techniques get better, we're going to learn more and more about it. And that was a really kind of a watershed moment for sure in uh, kind of the history of meteoritics. And we mentioned earlier that there's only about 100 people studying meteorites full time. And in your book, you talk about it was only when we started planning for the moon landings that meteoritics started to look useful. It seems really strange to me because meteorites were the only samples we had for, of material from space. We brought plenty of samples back from the moon, but, but we haven't brought back any, anything back from anywhere else. Why wasn't there more interest? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it, it's funny what becomes a noble pursuit and what doesn't. And, and for the longest time, meteoritics was just kind of a hobby uh, that people would do. And like you mentioned, when people were kind of gearing up for, you know, samples returning from the moon, they started realizing, oh, you know, these meteorites may actually tell us quite a bit about what we're going to learn. Uh, so it became a lot more important. And then, you know, fortuitously, the fall of Murchison uh, in Australia and, and, and also Allende, which, which was another meteorite that fell in 1969 in, in Mexico, those were perfectly timed samples to fall when they did because they were both very large and they came at the time when a lot of labs were gearing up for lunar sample return. So they were set up for, you know, clean labs and looking at isotopics and all these things that can tell you a lot about um, the provenance of samples. And uh, those were just really fortuitous timings, uh, I think, for those falls. And, you know, after that, it's certainly not the biggest science in the world. Like, you know, like you said, there's only you know, a hundred or so plus a lot of people do it kind of part-time, but there's not that many people to do it full-time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm glad to count myself as, as, as one of those that is fortunate enough to do it most of the time. Um, so that's, I'm, I'm lucky there for sure. And did they bring life to earth? <laughs> well, uh, depends on how you define bring, I guess they brought a lot of ingredients. Uh, I, I definitely am not one of the believers that they brought, you know, life itself. So like living organisms to earth, I don't believe that necessarily um, because we certainly haven't found anything like that in any of the meteorites, but they do bring a lot of ingredients that life needs. Uh, and among those ingredients are what we talked about earlier with the metals and phosphorus and all these things that life needs to keep going. But really interestingly to me, and when I learned about this in graduate school, it just totally blew my mind, is that Murchison in particular is a meteorite that contains a lot of amino acids. It contains, you know, a ridiculous amount of organic molecules. And, you know, you think about DNA and these are really complicated things. Well, you know, if you look at the base pairs and you look at the, you know, uh, the different ketones and all the different things that make up, uh, make up cells and life in the nucleus, a lot of those are contained directly in Murchison. I mean, you can isolate these, these things. And I, I got a list here uh, in, in the book about, you know, what, uh, what different organic molecules have actually been, you know, isolated in meteorites and, you know, adenine, guanine, uracil, these are all RNA and DNA nucleotides. And, you know, those are really important ones. And you, you go through the list of amino acids and it's just insane how many we've isolated in Murchison. And, and some of them don't really exist on earth at all. And these are only formed in outer space. So uh, bringing the ingredients, I think meteorites definitely did do, and they probably brought enough to create the entire biosphere. Um, which is just, to me, mind-blowing. Uh, you know, the study of life's origins is something that touches on philosophy, it touches on, you know, biology and geology and all sorts of sciences. And, uh, you know, meteorics, meteoritics plays a very important role in that. And I, I guess the big leap there is how does non-living stuff come to life? I mean, do you think we can ever find the answer to that? I mean, what, what thing that intrigues me is there is an answer. It's out there for us to 
for us to find. Maybe it's it's dull. Maybe it's just an ordinary answer once we once we find it. Or, or maybe that could be lost forever, like the dinosaurs would have been lost forever if not for fossilization. Do you think we can ever know how life I'm not came one to about? say never. Uh, I guess part of the, the, a lot of the people at the conference I'm at right now in New Orleans are studying that exact thing about how life, you know, started, uh, origins of life on earth, those types of questions. And, uh, you know, we've made a lot of progress. Uh, you know, I think the, the Miller-Urey experiment was one of the more famous ones that was basically able to show if you have kind of primordial soup of hydrogen gas and a lot of different kind of inorganic uh, ingredients, uh, shock it with some lightning, you end up forming things that look a lot like, you know, organic molecules that we use in life. So there are a lot of ways that people have envisioned how this might happen. Will we ever get there? Will we ever definitively say this is when the first cell really formed and then it was able to propagate? Who knows? I'm not one to say never, but it's certainly a really interesting way of, of study or certainly interesting topic to study for sure. And when we look for life beyond Earth, we look for water. Um, we've got a lot of water here on Earth and a lot of life. But your book got me thinking a lot about the early Earth when it was molten hot and water wouldn't survive that sort of heat. Where did all the water come from? <laughs> Man, you're touching on a lot of subjects that we're actively studying. This is <laughs> We don't really know where all the water on Earth came from. Uh, there's a good chance that it was here when it started and was maybe liberated from the mantle uh, at the moon-forming impact. Um, you know, some people believe it was delivered by comets uh, or meteorites themselves. Uh, there's maybe less evidence for meteorite delivery of water, but comets uh, contain, in some cases, you know, 90% plus water. So they're basically just large you know, snowballs with a little bit of dust in them. So if a comet hits Earth, it may have be able to bring uh, an awful lot of water in, in all of our oceans, basically. So that's one possibility. Um, you know, Earth's not really that wet. If you look at some of the meteorites we look at, I mean, Murchison is something like 18% water. Uh, I may be a little bit off on that number, but it's, you know, it's high. It's, it's over 10, 15%. And that's a huge percentage of water. Earth is nowhere near that wet. Um, so it's, it's not really that wet. It's just the location of where it is and that we kept our water. And it's fascinating that meteorites can be samples of other bodies in the solar system like planet Mars. These are really special meteorites, aren't they? And how did they end up on Earth? Yeah, Martian meteorites are really fantastic. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, we don't have that much material that we have collected uh, you know, we have a lot from the moon. We have a little bit from comets. We have a little bit from one of the ordinary chondrite, uh, ordinary chondrite asteroids. Um, but we haven't been able to collect samples from Mars yet. So really the only samples we have are the ones that were delivered free to us in the form of meteorites. And the way that happens is really funny. Uh, they're actually hit by another asteroid. So Mars is basically impacted by a, an asteroid and then it blows off samples. And then eventually those samples have an earth crossing orbit and we get a free sample from Mars. And uh, we've got quite a few of these, actually. It, it seems a bit imp implausible, but we've got, I, the number is probably over 200 uh, now at this point. I, I always forget uh, how many, and it's always growing, um, but we have quite a few Martian meteorites uh, at this point. And some of them are large, some of them are very small, but they're all very valuable uh, from a scientific standpoint. And of course, collectors obviously really like them as well. And yet, how much of it would have landed in the ocean? 
Well, yes, unfortunately, about 70% of it. Yeah, the ocean is big and, uh, you know, meteorites land at the same same rate wherever you are on Earth. So approximately. So, yeah, probably 70% of it's in the ocean, unfortunately. And there was a Mars meteorite that created a lot of interest back in the 90s. We thought we might have found evidence of life, but it turned out that the reports of life might have been exaggerated, but and it, and it wasn't quite what we thought. Yeah, that was a that's a really interesting story. Uh, it was a meteorite that was found in Antarctica during some of the Antarctic meteorite hunting trips, which are a story on their own, which is a really fantastic uh, thing to talk about. But but yeah, this this rock was found and then recognized to be from Mars, and uh, you know people were studying it and found some interesting things about it. And you know I'm not gonna not gonna say they were too ambitious. Uh, I think they did the analysis that they were doing, and you know said some things that got people a little too excited. Uh, I feel like they were fairly guarded in their statements, um, but you know how people run with things. And, uh, you know, it turned out they were probably wrong. Uh, th- there was no life. And I don't really ever think they said this is life. Um, they just said this looks like life. And, you know, let's test it further. And uh, we tested it further and it was not life. Uh, but but certainly was a was a very important moment in studying Mars as a planet uh, because it certainly jazzed up a lot of people about understanding what was going on on the red planet. We're talking with Greg Brenneker, author of the new book, Impact. Greg, how do you get meteorites to study? Who owns them? Is it like finders keepers or do universities and museums commission their own searches or do they buy them? How does it work? Well, yes, all of those are correct. Uh, for, for, you know, meteorites that are found on kind of public land or, you know, things like this, uh, it totally varies by the country. And, uh, you know, you're, you're in Australia. Um, so Australia is one of those places that has vast areas, uh, of, of open space and, you know, large lake beds that are dry, you know, large flat areas are great places to search for meteorites. Um, Australia is fortunate enough to have quite a few of these, um, like the Nalarbor, uh, is, is certainly one that is a very productive region of meteorite hunting. Um, but Australian rules, uh, are such that, you know, if you find a meteorite in Australia, that probably doesn't get to leave Australia. Uh, but luckily it does go to the, the, some of the great universities that are uh, present in Australia. So the universities certainly benefit when people collect meteorites in Australia, but, but, uh, less so the individual collectors in other countries, it can be a little different. Uh, sometimes countries have laws that if you find it on public land, it's yours and you can export it. You can, you know, sell it however you want to do it. Um, so it's, it's kind of a free for all when it comes to, uh, certain countries and certain countries are kind of somewhere in between. So it really depends on what country it lands in and and what country, uh, laws are. And what what do you think is the best place to search for meteorites? Certainly the amount of meteorites that have been found is, is by far, uh, the most in Antarctica. Um, you know, they, they run a lot of Antarctic meteorite trips. They've done pre-COVID, they've done basically one a year uh, since the 1970s, uh, just from the U.S. side. Other countries have also run their own. Uh, and, and the reason why is that, you know, when you've got a lot of ice, there's not a lot of things that are on top of that ice. And if you find a black rock on top of a giant glacier, um, it probably came from the sky. And, and that allows you to collect these things. And also Antarctica has a lot of glaciers that are moving. So you kind of have this conveyor belt of meteorites that as they land, they end up being transported to the nearest mountain range. So they pile up and, and it, you know, it allows you to kind of go collect a lot of meteorites in a, in a small amount of time. Um, so if you're just looking for quantity of meteorites, uh, Antarctica is certainly, <laughs> certainly top. How dangerous 
a meteorites to us these days. There haven't been any extinction-level events in recorded history, but have people been injured or even killed by meteorites? Uh, that's another great question. So there's definitely been people hit by meteorites. Uh, there's really two, I would say, highly documented and, and very believable cases uh, in which we have pieces of the offending meteorite uh, that hit people. Um, and neither of those people died, luckily. Um, one was actually hit in the head, but it was off of a tree and then it bounced off another leaf and then hit the person on the head. And it was only a, about the size of a, of a nickel or so. So it wasn't a huge meteorite. Um, and the other one hit a woman in the hip while she was taking a nap. Uh, and it also bounced through a roof and off a radio. So, you know, luckily these things were slowed down. Uh, she still got a pretty impressive bruise though, I will say. Um, but as far as people dying from meteorites, there's a lot in the literature, uh, in, in various, ancient cultures. And uh, some of that has to be viewed with grains of salt, because if we don't have the actual meteorite, uh, and it's not extremely well documented, it's hard to say, you know, if it is or is not uh, a death from a meteorite. And like we said earlier, meteorites might have been the source of life on Earth, and they've certainly been the end of life for a, a lot of species as well. And just one final question for you, Greg. What's been the most significant advancement in meteoritics in recent times or that you've seen in your career? What can we learn now that we couldn't in the past? Well, I guess I'm pretty biased because I'm an isotope guy. Um, so I would say using uh, kind of isotope dating that allows us to kind of look at the timescales of formation of planetary bodies and the location of their formation uh, I, you know, and, and again, this is a very biased answer. I, I think, uh, you know, understanding the organics and meteorites is incredibly important. Um, and, and that will continue to be, but, uh, for what I have been involved in with studying, uh, learning timescales of how rapid planets form and how rapid the sun formed, uh, I think has just been really eye-opening to me, uh, as someone in the field. Um, and I will have a thousand people disagree with me uh, in meteoritics and outside. Um, but that's, I guess, what keeps me going and, and studying meteorites is, is understanding timescales and locations of formation. Our guest today was Greg Brennecker, author of the new book, Impact, How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture and Donkey Kong. Greg, all the best with the new book. As always, we'll post some links in the show notes so our listeners can find it. It's been great talking with you, and thanks for joining us on Cosmic Coffee Time. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Greg's book, Impact, is published by HarperCollins. There's a link in the show notes, or go to harpercollins.com. Thanks for joining me. I'm Andrew Prestige, and I'll see you again soon for another Cosmic Coffee Time.